From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the all-electric BMW i7 is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors, shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display, or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining all-electric BMW i7. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. See your local BMW center today for a test drive. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Hello, it's Monday the 14th of December. Welcome to another edition of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. So today I'm really excited because we're going to talk a lot about the trading business. And Tracy, you and I, we sit in front of the Bloomberg terminals all day, basically staring at these streams of data and headlines and oh, yeah. economic information and charts. Lots of numbers. Lots yeah, it's like of we're like electronic things. Yeah. And I think like when people, including myself, think of what a trader does, they imagine a similar environment, wouldn't mm. you say? Yeah, I think they think of that or, you know, the New York Stock Exchange floor, even though there's no one actually on True. it anymore. But basically this idea is that a trader looks at a lot of numbers and spots things that they see it's undervalued and things it's overvalued. Mm -hmm. Maybe they use a spreadsheet. Maybe they use algorithms, but it's just this very uh, digital type of thing. Yeah, a very abstract set of numbers and an abstract kind of activity. Yeah. But obviously, trading hasn't always been like that. And today we're going to be talking about a very different style of trading. Here is an audio hint of what we're going to be talking about. Hey, so that kind of sounds like auctioneering to me. Pretty much. That's almost exactly right. So we're going to be talking about mule trading and specifically <laughs> a guy who made his fortune trading mules in the early 1900s in Mississippi. Joe, you have to tell me, was mule trading a big thing back then? So I wouldn't have guessed this. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense, I guess, because mules were important for farms and right. other activity. And no one but, had cars, right? Or few people right. had cars. So yes, mules were a big thing. A few years ago, I was uh, visiting my wife's grandmother down in uh, northern Mississippi, and I walked into a bookstore in Oxford, Mississippi, and I saw this book on the shelf called Mule Trader. Hmm. And I didn't even need to open it. I'm a very big believer <laughs> in judging a book by the title or the cover. And I, it was called Mule Trader, so I had, I had to buy it. no idea you were so attracted to mules. Well, <laughs> I'm attracted to mule trading. And uh, it's a fantastic book by this guy, William Ferris. He's a professor currently at the University of North Carolina. And it's about this guy, Ray Lum. The full title is Mule Trader Ray Lum's Tales of Horses, Mules, and Men. Hmm. And the idea is there's this guy who grew up in northern Mississippi, and at the age of 13, he did his first mule trade. 
And then he bought more mules, and he had a really good sense for what mules were valued. And he started trading all over the South and the Southwest and Texas and Tennessee and everywhere. And he became a huge deal, eventually more than in just mules, but in cattle, horses, livestock in general. Was he like the citadel of mule trading? I think so. I think uh, one, one of the things is that there's a lot of interesting parallels and things that we can learn about what he did. And trading today, for example, he engaged in interstate arbitrage, hmm. buying mules in one state, selling them elsewhere. He also engaged in warehousing. So he had these huge stables that he bought. And then when other farmers needed a place to store their mules, he made a lot of money keeping right. their mules for them. Well, this sounds awesome. I'm really excited. Yeah. And one other thing, I mean, you know, something we've been watching in the markets a lot lately, especially you, is sort of this illiquidity in certain areas of the market. Mm. Are mules illiquid? Very much so. And so to the point where like, no, there was very poor price discovery. Again, they didn't have mule Bloombergs back then. So they, uh, you couldn't just look up a price. You could sometimes <laughs> buy a mule and sell it for twice as much that very same day. All right. I'm very intrigued. On that point, I want to bring in the author of the book, William R. Ferris, a history professor at the University of North Carolina, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Who was Ray Lum, and why was his story worth telling? Ray Lum was a legendary trader of horses, mules, livestock, who was equally famous for his storytelling ability. And he lived into his 80s, long after horses and mules had ceased to be a central part of the South and of America, but he kept those worlds alive through his stories, and I was lucky enough to be able to record many hours of his tales. How big was the mule trade? How big of a deal were mules, and how big was this whole industry back? The mules were the backbone of life, not only in the South, but in our nation. Uh, it's been said that America was built by the mule. The first mule bread was bred by George Washington, mm -hmm. and it's said that the father of our country was the father of the mule. And the travel across the country, the farming, the moving of heavy loads, uh, Everything that this country did for several centuries was done on the back of a mule. Why why mules? Why not just donkeys or horses? What was the actual benefit of well, having this crossbreed? It's a hybrid. It's bred uh, with a cross between a horse and a donkey. And it's stronger than either of the parents. And it has much better judgment. A horse will work itself to death. Hmm. A mule, if it's too hot and tired, will simply stomp. So, Bill, uh, let's talk about Ray. How did he get his start? He made his first mule trade at the age of 13, right? That's right. He really had trading in his DNA. He was working for a, a merchant and... Just as a lark one day, he bought a horse for something like $10 and sold it for 15 And he told his boss what he had done. The boss said, Ray, 
I think you can make more money trading horses than you can working here in my grocery. And that's exactly what he did. He made really millions of dollars over his lifetime trading horses and mules. A few days later, another one come up with a horse. I bought him and give 15 for him. Horses were cheap then. The little horse was thin, but he was young. So I gave him $15 for him, tied him over there at the post. Mr. Smith said, Ray, he said, don't you think you could make more money out of trading than you could here? Oh, I says, I don't know, Mr. George, but I'll try it. Well, I haven't been without a horse since. Do you think the way he interacted with people was the key to his success as a trader? Or I guess what I'm getting at is what made him so good at trading? Well, I think he just loved the exchange and the... the it's like a, a card player in a poker game. You never know what hand you'll be dealt. Hmm. But he learned to compensate if a horse was blind and he bought a horse or traded for a blind or a lame horse. He learned how to take that animal and trade it to the next person and, and stay afloat as a, a broker, so to speak. But he made a big deal in the book. He talks about the importance of honesty, that he didn't want to lie about the quality of his mules. How do you trade a blind mule while also being honest with everyone? Well, he was very uh, clear that he never told a lie. But when he traded with other traders, you're dealing with people who are in the business as opposed to trading with a child or someone who was not a trader. So you would use special language. You would say, he's a little dim in the peepers, which meant to another trader, he's blind. Or you would say, he's only hitting on three, which means only three of his legs are, are good and he's lame in the fourth. You have to tell us, how did mules actually trade back then? Because I imagine it wasn't on a electronic exchange or anything like that, right? No. This is pre-internet. <laughs> Just is, a bit. You had basically road traders. Like when he began, he would take a string of mules and horses on a rope and ride them up into the Mississippi Delta and he would sell and trade the animals to plantation owners who would then use them to raise cotton. And so that's the first sort of trading. And then he began to work with livestock auction barns where you would have thousands of animals that would pass through in a day and be traded. So one thing I find interesting about this is that in addition to looking at an animal and sizing up its value and what you might be able to sell it for, you also have to take into account the costs of transporting a living thing and warehousing it, I guess, and feeding it and taking care of it. That's right. On one of his biggest trades, he bought 80,000 horses in LaPlante, South Dakota, and, and mules, and he gathered them and shipped them by train to New Orleans, where he sold them to Italian merchants. And as he said, the horses were wild. They had never seen a human being, and the Italians had never seen a horse. 
And after he sold them, his ring man said, let's go get dinner. And Mr. Lum said, I want to stay and see the show. And he said, what show? And he said, I want to see how the people that bought these horses are going to get them home. And that was quite a drama. They had ropes on their feet of the horses, and they were pulling them through the streets, and some of them got loose and were running in the streets of New Orleans. It was a, a Faulknerian kind of scene. <laughs> the, uh, you mentioned some of the lingo that he used to describe a mule. What are some of the other terms? I love one of the terms that's in the book is if he made 1% on a trade, that was actually meant he made 100% on a trade, or a 2% gain actually meant 200% on a trade. What were some of the other lingo the traders used to talk back then? Well, he often would use language associated with livestock for people. He would describe a person by saying his bread is not done, which means he's not fully there or he's not as sharp as he should be. And if he made, if he bought a, a horse for $100 and sold it for 200 as you said, he would say, I made 1%. One day a fellow come along with a little horse. And I bought his little horse, give him 12 and a half for him. Tied him over there to the post. Well, before night came, long came a fellow, and I sold him to him for $25. Made 1%, as the Dutchman says. One of the ways that he made money, he owned some huge uh, storage facilities, right? Um, That's right. And so uh, there was a part in the book that mentions you know, there was a big flood, a lot of flooding, and some of the local farmers had to store their mules in his facilities, and he made money on that. And it made me think about sort of modern trading and how the people who own the storage facilities for various commodities often uh, can make money on uh, warehousing fees. That's right. It, it's interesting. The country really was built on livestock and trading. And as that passed out, the language, uh, horsepower for cars, and stock, mm. the word stock originally referred to livestock, but today it refers to commodities and trading stock in a, a capitalist world in which you buy and sell stock which gives you partial ownership of a company. But the same mindset of trading and buying your way into wealth uh, applied to both Ray Lum's world and to the world's today. And Ross Perot, in uh, writing about his first trades, says that they were horse trades. He would buy a horse in the morning and sell it for a profit in the afternoon, which he said they called in that time a day trader. Well, huh. that phrase continues today on the New York Stock Exchange. Absolutely. And Ross Perot traded at the famous Fort Worth stockyards, and Ray Lum, a generation earlier, was also a major player in the Fort Worth uh, stockyards market. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. Mr. Lum spent many of his most productive years as a trader in Texas, and he introduced what they called night sales because it was cooler at night, and both the livestock and the buyers were more comfortable. And he would go, uh, he was based in Fort Worth with the Owen brothers, but 
he would go into the small communities and have livestock auctions uh, right at the doorstep of the farmers there. What was Fort Worth like, the lifestyle back in the day? Was it uh, sort of a lot of gambling and drinking? Oil tycoons. Yeah, what, what, I think was, what was it like? It was very much a frontier world. And Mr. Lum understood that the way to a lot of the buyers' hearts was whiskey. And he would, before a big sale the next day with the uh, Corps of Engineers, he would invite the colonels who were buying his mules to come by. He said, I've got a case of tea in the car. Well, the tea was bourbon. And they would order up steaks and pour out bourbon. And they had... quite an evening and the next day these military buyers would buy everything he had with a smile. I can see a lot of parallels with trading back then and trading as it's done today. We still use the term day trader. Obviously, brokers still take their clients out yeah, I was for just gonna say, boozy, like, expensive dinners. Right, yeah. to get the, to sell their products. You have like a mutual fund company take out a broker with a stake in alcohol. But there's one thing where I think there is a big difference, and that's in price transparency. The idea that Ray Lum was making a 100 or 200% markup, I, I'd find that hard to believe in today's market. Well, those were the stories he told. He certainly had <laughs> trades where he lost, you know. He simply, you know, kept going and stayed afloat because he was a good trader. My father was a farmer and he traded with Ray Lum and He told me the only way not to get beaten in a trade with Ray Lum is not to trade with him. So why were, you know, everybody knew who Ray Lum was. He became this huge, legendary figure. If the only way to beat him was to not trade with him, then why did people continue to trade with him? Well, you didn't necessarily beat him, but if you needed, if you had an old mule that was tired and unable to plow and you needed a good young mule, you would trade with him, and he would give you the younger mule, and you would pay the difference. That was called the tall. Uh, you would you would pay you know a little money, and then you would be able to continue farming, and you would leave with a smile because he would tell all the stories, and he had a kind of banter. He would say, "This horse is so slick." Uh, fly will light on him and slip off and break his leg. <laughs> he just had a, a way with words. Bill, and do you think do you think what Ray provided as a trader was a service that was valuable to the rest of society? Absolutely. Uh, it's said that the trader is the poet of capitalism. Uh, you bought things with a smile and he in the encounter and the exchange it was as though you were hearing poetry a trader is a man that trades in everything and a real trader don't ever find nothing that he can't use if he's a trader he'll trade for anything you've got he can use it if he can't use it he'll find somebody else that can that's his business a good trader helps lots of people And he makes money for himself. I always considered that I was a very good trader. The closest thing to that today is probably the used car salesman Hmm. 
who, when you have an old car that's worn out and you want a new one or a better one, then you go in and you you make a trade on the parking lot. And many of the old traders, when horses and mules were no longer being traded, they instinctively moved to the automobile. And uh, many yeah. of the old livestock barns were used as automobile yeah, I wanted to ask you that uh, specifically. So obviously, you know, Ray Lum was born in the 1890s. He lived over 80 years. So tell us quickly how he dealt with the economic transition, which was massive, that he saw during his lifetime. Well, as he, saw, as he said, he lived from the time when horses and mules were the most valuable things there until they were finally sold for dog food, which really broke his heart but he was a survivor and he kept those those worlds alive through his stories but he also moved on and he began to uh, instead of selling horses and mules to farmers who had tractors he would focus on children and find a pony uh, and sell a new saddle to people who enjoyed riding but he scaled back his operation and essentially had a livestock barn that would handle the buying and selling of cattle. But it was on a far smaller scale than what he had seen as a young man. Bill Ferris, thank you so much for joining us. I love this. I love the parallels to the modern day. And I really appreciate you talking to us about the life of Ray Lum. Well, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate your interest in all of this. Thank you for having me. Thank, Thank you. you. Different colors to match the saddle. I remember when there wasn't too many automobiles around. Cotton was about a dollar a pound at that time. Money was uh, easy to get. People loved horses. They wanted horses. Started, I was an auctioneer. I went to Memphis, and I went to Fort Worth, and I bought a, almost a trainload of horses. Uh, so, Tracy... What uh? What'd you learn? Uh, I learned a lot. Um, I think even more than what I learned, I really just enjoyed listening to that tale of a sort of bygone era that's full of nostalgia and the idea of you know people taking horses on trains down to New Orleans and uh, selling them to Italians. Yeah, I love I love like the salesmanship that was involved. I love the idea that because he was a good storyteller, that really helped him. Although, again, it kind of reminds me of today where some of the most famous investors and fund managers also happen to be great stories and they can you know, spin you a great yarn about what they're investing in. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are some pockets in investing and trading nowadays where there is still a human element that's really important. But the thing that all of this reminds me of as we were talking about earlier, is just how electronified our markets are nowadays. And on the one hand, that can be kind of bad because we lose those sort of human emotional connections to trading. But on the other hand, you could make a strong argument that markets are more efficient. I doubt... <laughs> I don't think... That's not a tough <laughs> argument to make when someone can sell a mule for twice what they bought it right. for the same day. Right. But then on the other hand, you know, mules... I guess we're such idiosyncratic things that really required a lot of expertise to price. Again, maybe that was a big service to yeah, the market. I love that point about service, the idea that 
you know, even though he was the better trader and if you traded with him as speculation, you were probably going to lose. But if you were a farmer that needed a new mule or, you know, trade in your old uh, bum mule, that essentially he was like sort of providing liquidity. There was nobody else who would give you anything for that mule, probably. Right. And I think the liquidity point is a big one because, as you and I both know, one of the main discussions in financial markets right now is about liquidity and whether or not investors need to pay up for the service of liquidity and you know whether or not they should expect that liquidity to always be there. Again, there are no easy answers, but it's certainly interesting to look back at a bygone era and, yeah, and, and think about cool it. Yeah, and it's cool to think of a very clear example where someone who can provide that liquidity is clearly providing a right. service to people. These and people. is compensated for it. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on another edition of Odd Lots. I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can find me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And I'm Tracy Alloway. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back here next week. Time changes all things. It changes all the past. Lots of things I see every day that I didn't mean that it happened. My God, but it, you look at that, it, it has happened. It's here. I try to look forward and think about things that will happen next year. Keep trying to look into the future and think of what's going to happen. I try to figure out what's tomorrow. Joe and I are very proud of our new podcast, Odd Lots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.